0: Um, So I am pleased to be able to introduce Dr. Michael Knight. He is the Associate Chief Quality and Population Health Officer, as well as Head of Healthcare Delivery Transformation at the GW Medical Faculty Associates, and is also Assistant Professor of Medicine at GW University School of Medicine. Originally from New York, he completed his undergraduate studies at Oakwood University and then attended and did medical school at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine. After that, he completed residency at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medical Center and then subsequently was a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation clinical scholar at University of Pennsylvania and completed his master's there in health policy research. Throughout his career, in addition to his dedication to quality and patient safety, Dr. Knight has been a champion for health equity and has been instrumental in developing community health education programs throughout the United States. He served as the 48th national president of the Student National Medical Association and currently serves as the founder and president of Renewing Health Foundation, a nonprofit organization working to empower urban minority communities through health education. Um, He has served on various boards and committees of organizations and has earned numerous, numerous awards um, throughout his career thus far. Um, and in addition to all of this, he's a board-certified internist um, and is board-certified in obesity medicine and practices clinically here with us at GW. So I am proud to introduce him to talk to us today about health disparities. Um, and so thank you, and welcome, Dr. Knight.
1: Thank you. I want to make sure my slides are, are right. I believe I should have the main page on, and I have the chat open. So I'm not sure the, the regular state of affairs for this lecture but feel free to jump in the chat if you have questions if you have comments as we go through um but again thank you to the organizers uh, for inviting me to speak to the fellows from across our, our region it's really an opportunity to discuss this really critical topic so health disparities current realities and the path forward um, we are going to be diving right in to not only talk about health disparities but really understand what some of the root causes are, as well as some of the current realities or the current barriers to overcoming disparities in health. And finally, what we can do as physicians to address these and really work to eliminate inequities in health. So once again, today we're gonna define health disparities with examples, measurement, and impact on patients' health, but we're not gonna spend the whole hour looking at statistics. I think that at this point, all of us know I can name at least five different disparities in health, and so we're not going to spend too much time on that, but we're really going to challenge each other to think about uh, what underlies continuous inequities in health, and then specifically what our involvement is as healthcare professionals. A lot of times we talk about this and we look outside the window. Um, This is an opportunity for us to look in the mirror and really think about our role, not only in, in breaking down barriers, but also... And achieving equity in health. So let's just kind of level set. It's important for us when we talk about language to understand what we're uh, speaking about. So when we talk about health disparities, we're really only talking about the difference between the health of one population and the other. So, for example, with breast cancer, we know that breast cancer is much more prevalent uh, in individuals who were assigned the gender of female at birth versus those that were assigned male, right? And there we know there's a large genetic component to that. And so whether or not you think that's an inequity, it is a disparity, but basically just telling us there is a difference between the health of one population and the other and who gets the disease or who has a disease or dies from the disease, right? So when we start thinking about uh, when the numbers uh, in certain populations, so for example, The African-American population, whether it is stroke, which is 44% more likely to die from stroke, whether it's breast cancer, cervical cancer, prostate cancer, maternal mortality, going down the list we have to think about are these just simply a difference in, in a health outcome between one group or the other, or is something else going on? Uh, is this a naturally occurring phenomenon? Is there a genetic basis for this, or is there another issue that is allowing this to happen? Uh, Of course, we uh, know that race is a a social construct. And so when we think about uh, specific communities who continually have higher burden of disease across different organ systems, we really have to challenge ourselves to think outside of this whole genetic explanation box. Um, You know, I think these days, uh, many of us have started to realize that there is not a genetic uh, piece that goes across all of these uh, issues. Five, 10 years ago, that was not the case. I was in medical school, we often really explained disparities in health by there being a genetic component. The reality, as we know, is that there's no one gene that gives, uh, for example, myself, I'm a part of the African-American community, uh, darker skin, uh, fuller lips, curly hair, and then also gives me a a higher chance of morbidity and mortality from almost every other condition. As humans, as we know, we're 99.9% genetically the same, whatever your race or ethnicity is that has been assigned to you by society. So what else is going on? We know it's not just unique to the African-American community. When we think about Latinx community, we see disparities in health with regard to asthma, liver disease, cervical cancer, diabetes, and again, knowing that uh, next is really ethnicity. So we're not even talking about race here. And we're seeing significant disparities in health across the wire. When we look at the American Indian and Alaska Native uh, community, which oftentimes does not come up in these discussions as it should, we see some of the largest disparities in health uh, from liver cancer and liver disease to obesity, heart disease, and also depression and mental health. And finally, our Asian American, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander. So we all know these numbers, we all see this, and the question you have to ask yourself when you're presented with these kind of statistics and data is, is this a naturally occurring phenomenon, or how do we explain this? How do we explain significant, significant barriers in health uh, between groups that don't necessarily have a genetic basis? When we think about gender disparities... That is also present. So, for example, thinking about women's health and gaps in care with regard to uh, cardiovascular health. So we know that we see data of CBD being the number one cause of death in women and responsible for one of four deaths. But we also see differences in how we see treatment, whether it's rates of ACE and ARB use uh, post-STEMI, whether it's a rate of diagnostic testing and specialty care, or even the kind of medications that are prescribed so when we start seeing that we say hmm what is behind these differences and what role do we play in identifying them or overcoming them another final example i want to give is is thinking about lgbtq health as we know there are a number of disparities that affect lgbt community um, whether we're talking about our lesbian patients our msm patients or transgender patients who have significant different outcomes with regard to a number of health concerns. But we also know some of the things that are brought up in these conversations, where you have 33% of transgender people delaying seeking preventive care because of what they have perceived as mistreatment within the healthcare system. So this is starting to give us a peek into what may be behind some of these disparities that cut across race, cut across gender cut across ethnicity, cut across sexual orientation, and don't have a genetic basis. So that brings us to the definition of health inequity. So when there's a difference in health status or in the distribution of health or determinants between different population groups, but those differences are systematic, avoidable, unfair, and unjust, and are rooted in racial, social, and economic injustice, and attributable to social economic, and environmental conditions in which people live, work, and play. So when we start talking about disparities in health, the majority of them that we see, we're really talking about health inequities because we know that many of this, these things are avoidable. They may be unfair. They may be unjust. They are rooted in something that does not level the playing field for our patients. And so it's important when we talk about disparities to really separate something that has a genetic basis, something uh, that is is very clearly linked to a population versus something that we assign or we see prevalent in a population, but we cannot explain it genetically or even physiologically. And that brings us to the conversation that we're going to have today. So oftentimes, many of us have seen these photos, and I'm going to challenge a lot of this as well, but of course, we know the difference between equality and equity. And so... Equality is treating everyone the same. In our Department of Healthcare Delivery Transformation here at GW, I often ask my staff, you know, do we treat all of our patients the same? And, of course, our reflective answer is going to be, of course, we treat everyone exactly the same. Uh, But therein lies the problem. In this photo, you can see we have treated all of these individuals the same, but their reality is very different. One is not able to see the game at all. One of them is barely seeing the game, and one has a very clear view of the baseball field, Uh, understanding that it's not just treating everyone the same, but providing each individual with the tools that they need to overcome and address their specific situation. And that's what brings us to that concept of equity providing uh, what this gentleman in the purple needs, he needs two boxes because he's shorter than the others. Or one individual doesn't need a box at all and is able to see over the fence. But I'm gonna challenge us as we think about getting to equity, it's an opportunity for everyone to attain his or her full health potential. Meaning that no one is disadvantaged, from achieving the potential because of their social position or socially assigned circumstance and that as we discussed includes race uh ethnicity religion sexual orientation so ultimately as physicians as clinicians we should all be uh committed to achieving equity right so when we took our oath graduating medical school when we went through residency we have been working to make sure that every one of our patients that comes across our, our, our list comes into our ICUs, come into our clinics, for those who do pulmonary, um, attaining their full health potential. And understanding what is standing in the way of that is critical for us to be successful in doing that. When we have that concept, what about these photos, right, is not working? What about this photo is saying, hmm, this doesn't fully match the definition that Dr. Knight just said. The inherent piece here is that we know that uh, when we're talking about equity, it's understanding that individuals don't inherently have something that is making them need more than someone else, okay? In these photos, you see three individuals that are are three different heights. Maybe the shorter individual is younger. Maybe he has a deformity. Maybe he has a genetic condition. So inherently, he needs more to see over the fence. And so it often feels like we have to give someone more because inherently they have less ability to achieve health. And that's really not how we should approach our patients in health in general. Oftentimes you see an individual coming from an underserved community. We should not believe that inherently this person is just going to need more because of who they are. It's actually their circumstances that is a much larger piece. And so because of that, We don't look at these photos, and whenever you see these photos, I challenge you to talk to the presenter, not necessarily in the presentation, but maybe after, to think about some more updated photos. Now, look at these photos and what's different. You have three individuals that are of the same height. They are inherently genetically the same. The difference is the reality. You have this individual in the yellow who is in basically a ditch. Because maybe historically, maybe something that's going on now, their playing field is not the same. You also see the fence. The fence is higher for them than for someone else. So this individual in the blue is not inherently um, more uh, inept to achieve um, seeing over the fence, but it so happens that whether something historically or currently has allowed them to be in a situation in life where they don't need three boxes to look over the fence. This is a much more accurate way for us to think about equity in that it's not an inherent and genetic issue that someone is running up against, it's their reality. So let's start talking about the reality. And most of the time that comes down to social determinants of health. I'm going to push you guys on this as well. But let's start here. So social determinants of health are conditions, environments, where we live, we learn, we play, right, affecting a wide range of health. And so we can, anyone who's gone to medical school in the last 10 years can run down the whole list of social determinants, right? Housing, educational opportunities, stable income, job security, food security, and healthy access to foods, right? Knowing that a large majority of our patients identify at least one social determinant of health that is affecting them. So when we think about disparities in the distribution of disease and illness and well-being, we often then will say, okay, so the disparity upstream from that is likely saw psychosocial stress, unhealthy behaviors, and upstream from that is a social determinants of health, right? And oftentimes, this is where the conversation ends. We said, if only we had quality education, if only we had transportation, only we had food availability in every neighborhood things would be so much better the challenge with ending the story here is that we don't understand what are the root causes that have led to this but also that maintain these challenges that we call social determinants of health when we go upstream we see really that higher than that is a power and wealth imbalance right whether it's in labor markets the social safety net tax policy globalization and deregulation, or education systems and housing policy, right? Understanding that above that, there is a reason that certain communities continue to have challenges with, with transportation and food availability. It's not a natural phenomenon. But even higher than that are the root causes that talk about institutional racism, that talk about class oppression, that talks about gender discrimination and exploitation. And I will say in the last few years, we have had an opportunity as a result of, of events in society as a medical community to really think about these things and really push past social determinants and really understand the, the levels that discrimination and oppression have continued to support these uh, challenges that our patients face on a very regular basis. So, even when we use the word institutionalized, and what does that mean? You know, when we think about individuals in healthcare, Today, no one's going in health looking at someone and say, because you look some, this way or because you are from a certain area, I'm not going to take care. I'm going to treat you poorly. All right? We're not seeing that significantly. What we see is really an institutionalized situation in society where there's a differential access to good services and opportunities. Whether it's housing and education and employment, whether it's medical facilities, whether it's information and resources, and one of the reasons we see an association between social class and race. is something that has a historical construct that has led us to where we are today. So we're going to take a quick walk down memory lane, again, just really stable setting the stage so we can all understand some of those historical things, and then I'm going to bring you up to 2022. So don't think, Dr. Nice, we're not going to live in the past, but it's important to understand some of the things that have played a role. So we all should know the concept of redlining, okay? So this was a time uh, in earlier in our nation's history where you couldn't just pick up and live anywhere you wanted to. Depending on where you were from, what you looked like, your phenotypic presentation, really determined what part of the city you could live. And, of course, for most people to buy a house, they have to have a mortgage. So through mortgage lending practices, through real estate practices, and through some just frank rules on the books, own specific communities were carved out for people, particularly in most cases people of color to live. Let's look at an example in Baltimore. All right, so I know we have some folks on the line that like rotate in that area, and so this should be a familiar map in nineteen forty. This was the red line map. So these were the parts in red that you see on the screen were the parts of Baltimore that they said people of color can live here, okay? This is where we want you to live. Everyone else can live elsewhere. And then you'll say, well, Dr. Knight, that was in 1940. We're not there anymore. Today I can move to Baltimore. I can live wherever that I want to live. But are there any continued vestiges of these kind of practices from you know much um, over 60 years ago and unfortunately the answer is yes right when we look at today's data when we look at uh, distribution of residents by race and ethnicity in Baltimore today their large population is in the same place so you'll say well if the rules are no longer there that they have to live there why do they live there still still understanding What tax policy, housing policy, and a variety of things have led to uh, restrictions on where people can live? And then when we look at neighborhood poverty, it's the same section again. We're here 60 plus years later, the same community. And so when we walk into a community and we say, oh, wow, this community is really torn down. You know, it seems like it's only the same folks that live here. The poverty is here. I wish this community would just, you know, pull up their bootstraps and get to work ignoring the fact that this community was created because of discriminatory practices and never had an opportunity to be not only resourced but over resourced to overcome that historical insult and so then we as physicians when we look at our maps for health outcomes right so infant mortality looking at lead poisoning in Baltimore it's the same community so once again For those of us in D.C., we know the it. We always talk about Ward 7, Ward 8, parts of Ward 4. Those were the parts in D.C. that were redlined. So we have to not just look at a community and say, oh, this is just so unfortunate, but understand this didn't just happen by chance. Whether it's our fault, we're not saying it's our fault. No one on this call did it, right? But the reality is these are what the communities are dealing with now. So that is The intro that I wanted to kind of think about the determinants of health, and we could have a conversation on what our mayor needs to do, what our city council needs to do, what our governor, for those of you in states, need to do. But that's easy, right? You guys can get another speaker to talk about that. What I want to talk about is us as a healthcare system, what is our role, what has been our role, and what is our role moving forward in addressing health equity? So, unequal treatment. Some of you may have identified or know what this picture is outlining. Unfortunately, the field that we all hold near and dear to our heart was not built on a basis of treating all patients the same. Um, unfortunately, we have a long history of unequal treatment. Of course, we know that in our medical establishment, there has been a leg- legacy of discrimination and exploiting a certain vulnerable populations. Uh, these actions remain deeply embedded in the collective consciousness of, of various communities. And again, not saying that people on this call have done it, but understanding what the history is of our field and what has been done in the past, right? So, of course, you see this photo, what comes to mind? The Tuskegee experiment. And that's what everyone talks about anytime we have this conversation. But I even challenge us calling it that because it's really called the U.S. Public Health Service Syphilis Study at Tuskegee, right? People in Tuskegee, Alabama, didn't come up with this. This was something that was funded and supported by our public health authority, right, by our today's CDC, funded by our today's NIH, and went on for 40 years, and did not end because people just woke up and said, you know, we got to treat everyone the same. Reality is this was going on into the 70s. We're not talking about back in slavery days, folks. We're talking about a time when folks were going to the disco and having um, flower power and loving everyone. We were still in a situation in our medical field where we had over 600 African-American men who were allowed to continue to have syphilis without being treated just so that we could study um, the outcomes of what happened. And so it did not end until it actually was leaked to the press in the 70s, that this was happening. So it didn't didn't end because we got a CDC director that says, oh, this is terrible. It didn't end because we had physicians who understood that we're treating people very poorly just based on their race. It ended because it became a public relations nightmare. And at that point, unfortunately, over 128 uh, individuals had passed away. But you say, okay, Dr. Knight, I heard about Tuskegee. You got to give me something else. The reality is Tuskegee was not unique even before Tuskegee, was the Guatemala Syphilis Experiment, where the US Public Health Service investigators, an NIH-funded study, went into Guatemala and enlisted over 1,300 individuals uh, to study not only treatment, but prophylaxis and the outcomes of syphilis uh, in children, orphans, sex workers, mental health patients, prisoners, and soldiers, to the point where study uh, directors uh, even went and inoculated uh, sex workers with gonorrhea and sent, or syphilis, sent them into the prisons and sent them into soldiers' camps to see how well uh, STIs could be transmitted without telling anybody anything. So you're thinking about this was not that long ago, that in uh, research in healthcare, we were really uh, doing severe harm to a number of communities. We know that in the antebellum period, we had in folks that were enslaved that were forced to be a part of a surgical um, uh, experimentation without anesthesia, or when, even when grave robbing was occurring for our medical school, so that our medical students would have cadavers to dissect uh, and were actually bodies of individuals that were stolen from their graves. So again, reckoning with that history. And just uh, last year, American Medical Association, some of us may be members, I am a member, but even the American Medical Association was able to identify that in their 174-year history, many decisions by our leaders in medicine plagued uh, our system with inequities and injustices that harmed patients. So not blaming anyone here for what was in the past, but it's important for us to acknowledge what happened and what our profession, unfortunately, was really founded upon. So it's up to us to now say, okay, that happened in the past. What are we going to do about it today to make sure that our patients uh, can build and rebuild that trust in our system? So let's bring it up to 2022. You say, okay, Dr. Knight, we've been through Tuskegee, we've been through redlining, we've been through the 60s, we've civil rights, we've had a black president. We are in a new place, right? So if we were to ask our patients today if they believe that any level of discrimination based on their race or ethnicity occurred in healthcare, what would they tell us? Of course, none of us here have come into or go into our hospital or our clinics clinic in any day with an with intention of discriminating or treating anyone differently. But let's hear what our patients say. So in 2020, there was a survey on race of health that was done by the Kaiser Family Foundation. And found that 70% of African Americans that were polled in 2020 felt that healthcare systems treat people unfairly based on race very often or somewhat often. Okay. 70%. Now we can go back and forth about the statistics, but I tell you, if I had my press gaming scores and, and 70% of the patients that I saw Dr. Knight said that he was treating them in a discriminatory fashion, I would not have my job here at GW. So when we look at survey studies, we say, hmm, why are our patients having this perception? Whether or not the perception is true, whether or not it's something that we're actively doing, when you see a number like 70%, we have to stop and think, what could be playing a role here? When they ask additional questions for people who are seen in the last 12 months, um, have you felt that you've been treated unfairly, personally, yourself? All right. We have a over 20% of individuals in, in many categories here have identified that that's how they feel. And finally, do you think doctors not providing the same level of care to Black people is a reason why they have worse health outcomes on average? And over 54% said either a major reason and 29% said a minor reason. So bring us back to health disparities. So we in our, you know, ivory Tower have conversations and try to understand the genetic basis for why African-Americans are higher uh, rates of prostate cancer, or why Latinx communities have higher rates of diabetes, or why our LGBTQ patients have worse outcomes in a number of areas. And we was like, well, I just don't know, or it's unfortunate, but there's something we should do to get rid of it. But our patients seem to know or think that they know that maybe the way they're being treated has played a role. I don't know. That's what we're gonna challenge each other to think about uh, in the next few slides. So again, no healthcare provider or institution wants to believe that we're treating people differently. No one wants to believe that we have a role in health disparities, right? You came to this talk today, probably thought I was just gonna show you some statistics and talk about everything that the country's doing wrong. But I want us to really think about what we could be doing differently, or is there something that we're currently doing? But it's hard to look at these numbers and make a case that it's not happening at any level. We have to understand that that many of our patients, there is a trust challenge. Uh, we saw this critically when we were in the COVID-19 or still in the COVID-19 pandemic, but very early on when we started uh, talking about vaccines, a lot of folks had a lot of hesitancy, didn't want to take it, didn't trust the healthcare system. And a lot of us were knocking our heads against the wall and said, I don't why would you not trust us? I mean, we come in with a white coat. We've been, we have credentials. We have all of our plaques on the wall. You, have, you should trust me. I'm here to help you. But not understanding that much of the distrust is rooted in a history of exploitation and contemporary experiences that are perceived by patients. Uh, and that decreased trust can make patients less likely to seek care or be compliant with treatment plans. So, understanding that trustworthiness is critical here before trust. So, understanding that when we think about noncompliance or hesitancy, understanding are we building that trust? What can we do to overcome that? So, I'm going to quickly touch on implicit bias. You've all heard about it, almost everybody's medical school would do some kind of implicit bias treating. But I'm going to have a different view on it, right? So implicit bias, unconscious attitudes, beliefs that may influence behaviors, nonverbal communication, physician perceptions and clinical assessments, even decisions about patient management. But is it more of a blameless construct in which we can find comfort, right? So, you know, implicit bias, I didn't ask for it. It's just something that's here. It's the way that I was socialized, what I saw on television, what the books I read, the things I heard on the radio. And it's unconscious. I'm not actively doing it. And so we don't blame individuals for a bias that they have. Everyone has a bias. It's a habit of the mind that could be changed over time. But if a person is aware, concerned, and interventions are employed to replace that bias, right? So first of all, everyone has a bias. It's something that we just have to accept. The the difference is, are you aware of them? Are you concerned if they are affecting um, people that you serve, people that you interact with? And are you doing anything actively to make sure that those biases do not affect the care that we provide? So when we think about the implicit association test, we know that generally in the United States, there's an implicit uh, bias that's racially uh, aware for the general population. And when we have studied this in the healthcare students, trainees, attending a variety, we have a similar bias. It's, again, it's not something we wanted. It's not something that we created. But when you grow up in a society that doesn't have treat everyone equally or it is not an equal representation from our, from our experience, from our education, then it's just natural that there's going to be a bias there. The point, however, it becomes a problem is if it affects the care that we deliver to our patients or even decisions that we make at the leadership level. So data has, we've had a number of studies that have looked at this and have looked at individuals who have taken these tests, who have identified bias, and then we look at how their patient care may or may not have been affected. The reality is that individuals who have a higher level of implicit bias are more likely to do things that we, um, I will introduce the concept to you on the coming slides of what we often see. And this will be defined as things like spending less time with patients, um, having uh, less explanations to individuals, or even less likely to recommend certain treatment uh, to individuals. Um, we have seen this, this is not data from me, these are published studies. That when we look at the way the care that our patients uh, do, receive, it's not that much different. From what they report to us, right? And so, when we look at just for an example, um, our African American patients more likely to receive lower ER tria scores for the same complaints, more likely to experience longer wait times for stroke intervention, less likely to be perceived as honest regarding their symptoms, more likely to spend less time with their physicians. Uh, this is just one example. We can put up a slide here to talk about what uh, our our women patients may feel where many individuals feel like they're not heard or that certain symptoms are downplayed. Uh, Our LGBTQ patients uh, who uh, uh, are actually the largest group that identify a way that they feel that they're actually just turned away from care completely when they work with, with our healthcare providers. So when that happens, and then we turn around and say, hmm, these groups are telling us, they perceive that they're getting treated differently. We see a connection here of a potential bias in society against them. We also see a little different in how they're treated. And then we look back and say, I just don't know why there are higher rates of diabetes or there are higher rates of breast cancer, right? There has to be a connection here. The reality is that for most of us in 2022, the way that we define what our patients are perceiving is something that we call cumulative deprioritization we're constantly triaging and prioritizing patients and the care that we provide them, all of us, right? Whether they are three critically ill ER patients in one ICU bed, we have to make a decision on which patient comes up. We have to think about their three patients being almost ready for discharge, maybe discharge home, maybe transfer out of the ICU, and we have no bed availability. We have to make a decision on who goes. Who gets assigned the most experienced nurse? For those of us in clinic, Who is going to get that extra 15 minutes to to get the explanation of a new problem? Who is the patient I'm going to see, even though they're running 15 minutes late? And who is the one that I'm not going to see? We make these decisions every day. not saying what they're based on. I'm just saying for all patients, we make this decision. The challenge is when there is implicit bias that is unchecked and that has not been acknowledged and there's no intervention, it's very easy for that implicit bias to influence the decisions that we have to make every day as healthcare professionals. And when we have seen in the data that individuals that, that do document higher levels of this bias, unfortunately, uh, do have differences in the way that they approach different patients. It's not in an explicit way, but it often occurs over many small decisions and not an overt action. I'm going to give you another example of a disparity that I think that is critically uh, a great uh, case study or case example. So when we think about maternal mortality, all of us know about the disparities, particularly with African American women uh, with maternal mortality. And so we see here that per one hundred thousand live births, pregnancy related deaths are significantly higher in that community. How do we often explain it? whether it's insurance, is it money? Is it something else? And African-American women may be more likely to have a lower socioeconomic status. Is that the problem? Now, this case I like because we can really push against that. So the data has shown that even an African-American woman that has a college degree or higher, that has insurance, that is doing well socioeconomically, is still more likely to die in a pregnancy-related situation than her counterpart, a white woman who has less than a high school education. So something else is happening here. And a number of studies have been done to try to understand what is the reality or what's the experience for some of these patients. And what they have found is that that many African-American women are less likely to receive routine prenatal care, told less information about health risks, received less intensive care, And less likely to receive correct treatment for cardiovascular issues uh, and less likely to receive routine care even when comparing women of the same SES and access so when we think about that then it really really helps us to think what can we do right we're not talking about what has been done not talking about the past we're talking about as of March 22nd how should we view these things oftentimes when we view health disparities we think we're in a broken system. The system is not working. But as Michelle Evans said last year, inequities in health, healthcare care access, and quality of care are ingrained in the US health care system. And these inequities are not a sign of a broken system. But in fact, in this sense, could it be that the system is operating as it was built to operate? So if we're in a system that was never built on equity, that has a historical challenge of treating everyone and providing them with the care they need. And then you also have a a society where certain communities have a different playing field. When we think about health inequities today, are we really dealing with a broken system? Are we dealing with a system that uh, is designed to operate and deliver certain results and that challenges us as healthcare professionals to continue to reform that system so that we could achieve health equity? Every 10 years, the Surgeon General comes out with the Healthy People 2010, Healthy People 2020, with the goal of eliminating healthcare disparities. And with the millions of dollars invested, the time spent, we still haven't been able to make a change. In fact, in many cases, health disparities continue to get worse for many communities. We saw it with the COVID-19 pandemic, where the same groups that were as high as risk for almost every other condition also had the worst outcomes. And so when we think about that, we say, hmm, are we going to keep doing the same thing and expect a different result? Or we are going to really look and say, maybe the problem is that the system is operating as it was designed, and we have to work together to understand how it's operating, to dismantle the inequities, and to work together to build a system where everyone has an opportunity to achieve health equity. So pushing us past thinking health disparities are the inalienable truth. In, and the status quo in America, but really saying what's the solution, all right? So Dr. Knight, you made your case. Whether or not you agree with me, the data seems to suggest maybe there's a role that we can play in helping to achieve health equity, and that's what I want us to take home from this talk today. So it's eliminating those systemic and implicit pieces that, yes, are involved in medicine as they're involved in the rest of society. We're not in a bubble. We're real people who live in a real world. And so understanding if there's something involved in our day-to-day practice that is making a difference, establishing and adhering to standardized evidence-based practice guidelines is a huge opportunity for us. So we're not just relying on that SNAP decision. We're not just relying on how we are able to value or risk stratify a patient just in seconds when we are tired, when we've been working all night when a variety of things, but actually having a guideline that when our patient presents with this, this is what we do because this is standard of care. When we match the investment of clinical resources to the level of need, right? So thinking about what a community needs to achieve that. So if our community is dealing with social determinants of health, food access, uh, transportation, it's not just treating everybody the same. It's saying, maybe I need to over-invest. Maybe I need to do more for this community because of that historical uh, playing field not being there and currently not being the same and the current barriers that they have. So maybe it's spending that extra time. Maybe it's our patient navigation program. Maybe it's our care management program that has to be enhanced for specific individuals, and not just the same for everybody. Optimizing the doctor-patient relationship. So for us as physicians, checking our own bias, we all have it. Checking our own bias and making sure that it's not affecting our care and not affecting our experience. Again, nobody went into medicine to treat people differently. But if our patients are telling us that they feel something is off and the data is telling us that something is really, really off, we really have to think about What are we doing day to day and how can we work to overcome that? Building trustworthiness through partnership. So partnering with the communities that we serve, getting into the communities, understanding the reality that our patients are facing and building that trustworthiness, building that. And finally, increasing diversity in in our profession. Of course, it's not about tokenism. It's not about having someone for our brochure. It's about learning from each other. That diversity in your fellowship classes, in your ICUs, in your clinics, helps you to learn from each other. Learning from uh, about other cultures from a colleague is one of the best ways that you can do that. Learning about the approach and even looking in the mirror and saying, hmm, why is it that my practice is different than someone else's? Maybe they, they train in a rural area. Maybe they train internationally. And having that ability to learn from each other allows us to really provide the best care to our diverse. Population. And finally, as I said, with building trustworthiness, is having collaborative and participatory programs with those communities, not just dropping in with those helicopter drive bys when we have a grant, really being involved and having a sustained relationship with the community to understand. Well, why we why we don't want to just have equality, we want to achieve equity. But even when you look at this photo, as clinicians in 2022, We shouldn't even be happy if we ultimately gave everyone the box they need because we have to really challenge the premise of why the fence is there in the first place, right? For us to achieve justice, we have to work together to break down those barriers, break down those fences, really work to get to a society where we all have equal access to the things that really impact our health and to the point where we can treat everyone the same because they're at the same place and have the same opportunities. But until then, we have to continue to remember the history, to know the context, understand that bias often does play a role in all of our lives, checking our own bias, checking the way we practice, then understanding how healthcare is operating in our spaces, understanding what policies and procedures are in our institutional levels that may be combating, Uh, health disparities in health, or maybe maintaining disparities in health, maybe a barrier for equity for our patients, having honest conversations, uh, and then as you go on into leadership, uh, making sure that equity remains at a highest level of your priority so that we ultimately can get to the point where we have justice and have an opportunity for every patient to, to achieve their optimal health potential. So thanks for your time, I hope that you took something away from that talk. I, I wanted to give you a little bit different than you may always see in a, your health disparities curriculum, um, but I hope that it challenged you, and I hope that it also caused you to think about your potential role in helping to achieve equity in health in this country.